will. As a kid, I loved watching professional wrestling, which really wasn't wrestling at all. But uh, I wrestled with my younger brother when I was, uh, when he and I were growing up. He's a couple years younger than me, so I usually beat him when that would happen. I wrestled with my college roommate, uh, who was bigger than me, and I lost consistently to him and paid for damage to our dorm rooms that happened consistently in those matches. But this was unique. This was unique. This was a hotel setting. Um, a hotel room. I was outnumbered three to one, and it wasn't individuals that I didn't know. They were actually very close friends of mine, all my age and my size, and felt a little ganged up on. I had anticipated that this was going to happen, but the struggle and the wrestling was greater than what I anticipated. You see, the adrenaline was pumping as they kept coming at me one at a time, and I kept escaping them. Why they didn't work together to come at me, I don't really know. But for some reason, I kept them at bay, and they rotated in and out, uh, tagging one another, if you will. They had one goal that night, and that was to pin me down and write messages on me with the black sharpie to my future bride. Um, it was the night before my wedding in the room with my groomsmen, guys I considered my closest friends. So I don't know what your most recent wrestling match was. Uh, for me, that was one that stood out to me very distinctly. Prior to that time, my most recent wrestling match had been with my parents, of course, you know, as a college student. And I had wanted to bring a car back. They didn't want me to bring it back. The car was in my name, but they were still the parents. And uh, as you can imagine, I lost that one. Um, but maybe for you, that's what the most intense wrestling match is in your life right now. Maybe it's a wrestling match with mom and dad. And I hate to tell you the bad news is you're likely going to lose that one. Maybe the wrestling match has been with your spouse over a decision that neither one of you are willing to budge. You both say on a scale of 1 to 10, this is a 10. This is a 10. Maybe you've given in your whole married life and you're like, not this time, not this time, not going to give in on this one. Um, but maybe for you, the most intense wrestling match has been one with God, has been a wrestling match with God. He's calling you and you resist it. He's inviting you to a deeper place in your faith journey and you're holding him at arm's length. He's calling you to give up uh, that deepest, face your deepest fears and address your most tightly held addictions and you just won't let go. And the wrestling match is one for the ages. What causes these life and death wrestling matches that feel like a cage match? Most often they come from desires, things that we want in our lives, but those desires are blocked. And when we suffer, we ask very hard questions and we're confronted with an intense kind of pain because the realities of life hit us in ways we don't normally experience them. You see, when we're faced with these struggles, our emotions are raw and we're on the edge because we wonder if the pain will ever go away or if the grief will just, and the struggle will just continue. Today we're going to look at a wrestling match, the most intense wrestling match that Jesus ever encountered. And it's a wrestling match um, that we're going to find a lot of similarities to our lives today. But as we explore that wrestling match, you're going to face the reality that when you face a struggle, when you face a struggle, you can escape the pain or you can embrace your emotions and your struggle. You can escape the pain, or you can embrace the emotions and the struggle. If you have a Bible, if you would turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, that's where we're going to be this morning, and we're in a series in the Gospel of Mark entitled Simply Jesus. And the reason we're in the Gospel of Mark is Mark captures the stories of a close friend of Jesus, one of his disciples, a guy by the name of Peter. And Peter shared all of his experiences with Mark, and 
Almost every story in the Gospel of Mark includes Peter, including the one for today. Mark wanted a concise, simple story to focus on who Jesus was. He was the King of Kings and why he came as the one who was about to suffer. And Mark provides for us the most extended version of the last week of Jesus' life. More details, more description, more events than any other gospel about the last week of Jesus' life. And it's as if he wants us to know and experience what this week was like for Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Jesus was in the temple and Jesus turned the place upside down because he wanted the place of worship to be a place where everyone is, anyone is welcome and anyone could be changed by Jesus. And then last week, Tim led us to see that Jesus changed everything about the most traditional event, the most important event in Jewish history, in the life of the Jewish community, Passover. Jesus turned it upside down on its head as a precursor that he wants to do this same thing in every single one of our lives. Well, the next story, if you're there in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is talking about what's about to come. And he tells his followers, his closest followers, he says, when the shepherd is gone, the sheep are going to scatter. And Peter said, not me, Jesus, not me. I'll be there, I'll be there. Jesus says, oh, Peter, Peter. He says, unfortunately, before the cock crows three times, the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me and walk away. And Peter said, no, no, no. No, it's not going to happen to me. He said, I'll die before that happens. And Jesus lets the conversation die off. In the midst of all of this intensity, in the midst of him creating upheaval in the temple, in the midst of his conversations with his followers, he decides it's time to take a break. He'd been engaging the chief priests and the religious leaders, engaging the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious and the political community. And he decides to take a break from all of them. He leaves the temple area, goes back down through the Kidron Valley, over into a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane um, is found in Mark chapter 14, where it says they went to this place called Gethsemane. There really is no description in the Bible of the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a title we've made up. The word garden with Gethsemane actually never appears together. You say, why do they call it a garden? Well, the word Gethsemane means olive press and they would press olives from what kind of trees do you think olive trees olive trees and olive trees are spread all over the land of israel and they grow in that hot arid desert climate and what do you think they produce from these olives olive oil olive oil exactly and so likely there was a grove of trees that these um, where jesus went and in this grove of trees there was an olive press likely in a cave, something that looks a little bit like this. They would collect all the olives. They would put them in this massive press. They would grind the olives, and down at the bottom there's a little tube, and that's where they would get their oil from. Probably a cave, a cool place to work in the heat of the day. They would collect the olives off the trees. They would store them in the cave, and when they had time, they would grind the press and grind them down and then have olives, olive oil. And so Jesus asked his followers to come and sit with him while he goes and prays. That's all Jesus asks. Doesn't ask a lot. He says, guys, why don't you just sit here and pray? They don't quite know what's going on, but they have to have a sense something's happening. Something's happening. They had come to Jerusalem for Passover, something that had taken place for them over and over and over again. They came with Jesus. It was a bit disruptive because he created chaos, and then he's in conflict with all the religious leaders 
And he keeps talking about the shepherd being gone and the sheep scattering. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? So I think it was a very confusing time for the disciples, but I think they had a sense something's happening. Don't quite know. Something just doesn't seem right. And so he takes three of his followers, Peter, James, and John, and he says, guys, why don't you come with me and let's go. And they went a little further into the grove of olive trees. And it says there that he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Mark provides for us the most detailed description of the emotions of Jesus in this passage. Words to describe the greatest possible level of anguish. Some other translations would say it this way, the horror and dismay came over him. Horror and anguish overwhelmed him. It's very surprising because it seemed like Jesus knew exactly what was coming. Didn't he? It's almost like he had this calendar in his brain that told him, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is... And the disciples would periodically say, hey, can we do this? And Jesus would say, no, 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 no. It's not time. It's not time. It's time for this. No, can we do that? No, no, no. It's not time. It's like he had this mental calendar of all these things that were going to happen. And so the fact that at this moment in time, Jesus experienced some sense of horror and surprise that came over him, you're wondering, what was he astounded by? What overwhelmed him at that moment in time? The word distress means to be astonished, shocked, surprised. The word troubled is to be overcome with this sense of horror. Imagine, if you will, you're sitting in your kitchen and you hear this screeching, smashing sound of metal grinding against metal outside on the street by your house. And you go out, and to your surprise and to your horror, you see metal um, laying everywhere. And you see a car that you recognize of one of your family members. And then you see them laying on the ground, their lifeless form. And you're just overcome with this devastating sense of horror. To the point that you don't even know if you could breathe or go on. And that's what Jesus says. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with Sorrow to the point of death. What happened to Jesus? What did he see and encounter? What gave him a whiff? What gave him a taste of something that was about to come that even he was surprised by? He takes his closest friends and he goes away and then he says, guys, I don't want you to do anything right now. I just need you to stay here and, and keep watch. You know, when someone's suffering, when someone's going through a difficult time, what, what do you do? How do you respond? Do you offer comfort? Maybe that's something you're able to do. Do you try to relieve their comfort, try to ease their pain in some way? Do you move away and say, oh, that's too much? Do you freeze? I don't know what to do. Jesus says to his followers to do what might be the hardest thing to do in that moment. He says, can you just stay here? And watch. Just watch. Watch for what? Watch for whom? Watch. Watch. He goes away a little further and he fell to the ground. He prayed that if possible the hour might pass. Not, not a little hour, but that time frame of this suffering that he's about to enter into. And then he cries out. He says, Abba, Father, 
Abba, Father. Term of endearment that a child would say to their father or you would cry out to someone who could do something about your situation. And that's what he says. Everything's possible for you. He cries out to the one, to the only one that can do something about his situation. Then he says to him, he says, can you take this cup from me? Can you take this cup from me? The cup is a picture. It's a symbol of suffering. And he had just been with his followers sitting around a table and they had just passed this cup. And he says, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise of something that's to come. And so there's, a, there's almost an anticipation and excitement as they're wondering what's coming. They're thinking Jesus is going to lead them to overthrow the Roman rule somehow. And now he talks about another cup, a cup of suffering that God was about to pour out on him. This idea of a cup of suffering is all throughout the Old Testament. The prophets talked often about it. Prophet Ezekiel said, you'll drink from your sister's cup, a cup large and deep, and it'll bring scorn and derision. That's what that cup holds. He says, it's a cup of ruin and desolation. The prophet Isaiah says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, who defends his people. I've taken out of your hand the cup of God, the goblet of my wrath. You see, what Jesus had known his entire eternal existence was this amazing oneness with the Father. Even when Jesus was here on the earth, the Father and the Son, they were one together with each other and the Spirit. He had experienced unconditional, ever-present love for one another. And Jesus got a glimpse, he got a whiff of what was to take place because not only was the Father going to abandon him, the Father was going to turn his back on him to the point that he would say on the cross, my God, my God, you have what? Forsaken me. Not just the abandonment of his Father, but he also got a glimpse of the wrath of God. The sins of all of mankind poured out on him as he hung on that cross. All Jesus could see was the darkness, the distance, the abyss between him and his father and the wrath of mankind. And in the garden, he got a taste of that. He got a glimpse of it. It's as if the curtain was pulled open. And he faced the agony of what was to come. And he pleads with the Father. He says, take this cup. Take this cup. Is there some other way? Any other way? You can do it. I know you can. Have you ever uttered those words? God, is there some other way? God, I'll take any other disease but this one. I really will, God. This is really horrific. God, I'll take any other betrayal from anyone else in my life, but not this person. God, I don't know if I can survive. I don't know if I could go on. God, not this person. I can't lose them. I'll take any other way. Put your worst fear in there. Put your worst fear. And then what does Jesus say? He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Not what I want, 
but what you want. And that's his prayer. That's his prayer. See, when we talk about following Jesus, it's not just a phrase that we use around here. When we talk about following Jesus, it's not just this nice idea of doing good for other people. When we talk about following Jesus, it's living the life that Jesus lived in every setting of your life. And in those settings where you find yourself faced with your greatest fear, your greatest wrestling, your greatest struggle, he says, will you be able to say what I was asked to say? which is not my will, not what I want, but you want. He goes back to his followers, and uh, it had been a long day, meal, encounter with the religious leaders. They're now back in the cave. The sun's going down, and he goes back to check on his guys, and they're out cold. No surprise. The guys are sleeping. Um, and there's Peter. He says, Simon, said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you just watch? I just needed an hour, Peter. That's all I needed. He says this, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. He says, Peter, I just need you to watch. And by the way, can you pray? And then he goes off and he leaves them. And he prayed the same thing. He came back a third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. And I wondered, why did Mark record this over and over and over again, that they blew it. Why? Why? I don't know about you, but I don't like it when I blow it with the people that I care the most about. When I blow it with my wife or with my kids or good friends. And, and, and there's a part of me that when that happens, I want like, man, I really don't want to do that again. And so what can I do to try to avoid that happening again in, in this particular area? And there's nothing more excruciating for me personally than when I have to go back to the same person again and again, which is usually my wife, and say, "Hun, I just blew it again, and I hope you can forgive me. Um, the truth is, it's happened to me, it's happened to you, it's happened to the disciples. And I wonder if Peter put this here as a reminder to us that this is part of our struggle, that we want to be there for one another, but often we won't, just like the disciples. Have you had that happen to you? You really needed someone to come through? Maybe it was a friend, maybe it was your spouse, maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was a small group leader, and they didn't come through. It's as if they fell asleep. I love relationships and I love people. And when I find myself in a difficult time, my first response is to contact a couple of close friends and ask them to pray for me. It's my first response. And, and maybe that's not your first response. Maybe that's your last response. And, and you find yourself with a friend checking in on you. How are you doing? I'm, uh, and they're like, all right, come on, spill it, spill it. Something's not going. You, you don't come clean unless I come and call you out on this. And then you're like, all right, this is what's going on. And, 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 you're, and they're like, hey, how can I, what, what do you need? And you're like, hey, can you just pray for me? And then you never hear a word from them again. Like, ah, oh, ah. Oh. Jesus not only didn't have the guys that were closest to them, they just couldn't be there for him. The only person that was there was the Father. 
And the truth is, I think in any area of our life where we are wrestling, any area of our life where we're struggling, you will find yourself, whether you're relational or not, whether you go to people or they come to you, you will find yourself at some point in time, in the middle of the night, all alone, and it's just you with God, and He's saying, who is going to be in charge here? Is it going to be your will or mine? Is it going to be your will or mine? All Jesus asked his followers to do was to watch and pray. Watch and pray. They didn't know what was coming. They didn't know who was coming. He says, can you watch and pray? And then he says this, so that you will not enter into temptation. And I wondered, what was the temptation for the followers of Jesus? He says, you're going to want to do this, but you're going to struggle. Spirit is willing. I want to, right? But the flesh is weak. I'm going to struggle. I think when we face difficult times, there's three things that we run into. I think there's a temptation to run from the struggle, which all of us do, and that's we avoid it. We avoid it. There's a temptation to lie. Oh, I'm I'm fine. I'm fine. Which Peter's going to do, and that's to minimize it, to make it smaller than it is. And lastly, I think there's a temptation to deny it, which Peter will do and say, ignore it. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. I don't know about you, but when I face a struggle, my biggest temptation is to do this, to take charge, to take control, to find a solution to relieve the pain. You see, that's what I want. It's not what God wants. It's what I want. And your heart might be in it, but you might struggle to do this. And so what does God want from me? God wants this from me. God wants me to trust. God wants me to release it. God wants me to surrender. God wants me to watch and wait. That's what he told his disciples to do, right? Just, just wait here, guys. And pray. Just wait. And pray. And he says to us, if you're in the struggle, not my will, but yours to be done. Not my will, but yours to be done. You see, when Jesus is asking you to follow him and life gets hard, he's not asking you to do anything he has not already done. He's already done this. The writer of Hebrews says this. During the days of Jesus' life, he didn't just throw up his hands and say, whatever, I can't do anything about this, whatever. He didn't run and hide. He didn't say it's no big deal. Life is fine. He offered up prayers and petitions. He brought this regularly to God. And he did it with what? Fervent cries and tears. He poured out the emotions of his heart to the Father the one who could save him from death and he was heard why because he said not my will but yours be done not my will but yours be done you say but john you don't understand this struggle that i'm in i I didn't do anything wrong I, i i didn't it's, it's not an addiction. It's not something I, I made some bad choices. Now I'm living with the consequences. This is just something that got put in my life. It's not fair. And he's still asking me to willingly surrender. Listen to what Peter, who was there with Jesus that night, wrote a little bit later. He says, For it is commanded, commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering... Because they are conscious of God. For how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good, you endure this 
This is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You see that prayer that Jesus prayed? He invites us to pray that same prayer. He invites us to walk into that conversation with God. And what did Jesus do? He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults, he did not retaliate. Instead, he did what? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Even when it wasn't fair. Even when it didn't make any sense. He was honest with his heart, honest with his emotions, honest before God. He didn't run from it, minimize it, deny it, ignore it. But at the end of the day, he was able to say, not my will, but yours be done. He said, there's someone I'm going to have to trust, and that someone is not me, that someone is someone greater than me, someone bigger than me, someone who understands the whole story from beginning to end in a way that I don't have the capacity to do so. And so I want to ask you this question. What is your current struggle? What is your current struggle? I want to invite you to take out your program and take the the note sheet out of that, take a communication card. I want you to pull something out And I want you to grab a pen. I want you to answer a couple questions I'm going to put on there. And the first question is, what's your current struggle? And you may say, John, it's going to take me a while to write. There's more than one. Well, just pick one for this morning. But what's the current struggle that's going on inside of your heart? What's the longing of your heart? What's the thing that it might be a good thing that you want and God's not giving you that? Or it might be a struggle that's been placed on you unfairly. You poured yourself into that company and now they're treating you this way. You've tried to love that partner well, and they don't want anything to do with you. You've sacrificed everything for this kid, and they're like, just leave me alone. You poured out your heart to God, and you spent thousands of hours and dollars in counseling, and you still are struggling. What is that struggle? And how are you facing it? How are you facing that struggle? Are you trying to escape the pain? We're in a culture that numbs our pain. We do not like to sit with painful emotions. We do not like to sit with them. I have an exercise that we teach in our Emotionally Healthy Relationships course called the Ladder of Integrity. And the purpose of that ladder is for you to get clarity internally about the things that you are wrestling with inside Because we do not naturally know how to get clarity about what's going on inside of us. What our thoughts are, what our feelings are, what the things we value. Why is this hard? What is my part? What's the other person's part? What do I hope will come out of facing this difficult struggle? We just escape it. We numb it. We numb it with our habits. We numb it with what we watch. We numb it with what we eat. We numb it with where we go. The other thing that we do with our pain is we're just cool and detached. Whatever. Whatever. It's no big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. It is. God cares about that struggle. Whatever it is that you're facing. Whatever it is. Will you, will you be able, like Jesus, to embrace your emotions and embrace the struggle? Embrace your emotions and embrace the struggle. And at the end of the day, 
Are you willing to say what Jesus said? Not my will, but yours be done. Will you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer this morning? God, you know the struggle of our heart. You know my struggle. You know the struggle of each person in this room this morning. Whether they've said it to someone or whether no one in the world knows it, you know it. And God, not only do you know it, but you've allowed Jesus to walk through and experience a struggle like no other to give us a high priest that can understand our struggles. And in a struggle greater than anything we will ever face, to watch him say, not my will, but yours be done. And God, it's really hard to pray that prayer because I know what I think should be done in this situation in my life. I know what my will is, and I'd be more than happy to share that with God if he would just listen to me. But he doesn't seem to want to right now. And um, so, Lord, I pray that each of us today would be able to honestly bring that before you. And in doing so, have this amazing sense that the God of the heavens and his son Jesus knows exactly what I'm going through. And God, if we've not said it yet, may we be able to, in our thoughts this morning, be able to simply say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Make that our prayer, God. It's really hard. We need your help with it. The riches of this world will fade. The treasures of our God remain. Here I empty myself to all this world, nothing, and find everything in you. The riches of
You can have a seat as we wrap up. Well, it's been great to have you here this morning, and uh, our ushers are going to come, and they're going to collect those communication cards from you so um, that Roddy mentioned. So if you can pull those out and uh, drop those in the buckets. Uh, on your way out, I want to encourage you, if you haven't already done so, grab a packet of our Easter invite cards and be praying this week about someone you can invite to join us this weekend. Well, you know, in that hotel room that afternoon, that evening, uh, my buddies couldn't pin me down. They couldn't get me down, and I was pretty proud of that. But my younger brother, by that time, had grown to be about six foot two and about 200 pounds and was a college wrestler. And so after 45 minutes of wrestling with my buddies, my brother simply turned, grabbed me, and in about 30 seconds had me pinned so I could not move. And I had to give up. I had to surrender. And so you might be winning that fight with God right now. You might be winning the fight. But at some point, God's going to bring you to a place to say, are you willing to say, not my will, but yours be done, and to say simply, I surrender. That's what he's inviting you into today and this week. It's been great to have you here with us. Uh, We hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next weekend. See everybody. I surrender.